Hello, everybody, and welcome to the thrilling adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. This is episode 92, and my name is Michael Bradley. This episode, we'll be looking at the 19th storyline from the Superman radio show. And by pure coincidence, it's actually about as close to a Halloween-themed story as we're probably going to find in this era of Superman. And yes, I know Halloween was last week. I I tried really, really hard to get this episode out uh, last week, and it simply didn't happen. Uh, But thankfully, though, it's here this week, and if you are like me, you are probably still coming down from a sugar high and in the mood for some Superman. Or at least I hope you're in the mood for Superman, or boy, are you in the wrong place. Uh, But first, before we get into the story, I have got a bit more email to go through. First up is an email from Drew Ivers, and the subject line is, Really liking the show. And he writes, Hi Michael, I just want to start off by saying thanks for the great podcast. And Drew, you're welcome, and I want to thank you for listening. Uh, he, he continues, I only started listening a few weeks ago, but I can already tell I'll be, a, I'll be a fan as long as you keep making new episodes. I enjoy the level of detail you go into with each story and the variety of media you cover. The creator profiles have been a nice treat as well. It's given me a great excuse to reread the Chronicles series of books as well as purchase the dailies collections. I'm looking forward to listening to the radio shows as well. Though I'm still far behind the current episodes, I hope to catch up soon. I listen to you on twice speed on the iPhone's podcast app and follow Superman's evolution over the years. Thanks again, Drew Ivers. And like I said, Drew, thank you for listening. I'm, I'm really glad you enjoy the show. And I like hearing that people enjoy the, the various things I do, especially the creator profiles. Um, I have put a lot of work into those. And, and I, I actually recently said on another site that the Siegel and Schuster profiles I did way back in like episodes 10 11 maybe the early teens somewhere in there are two of my favorite things I've done for this show um, even though you know I've gone back and listened to those a couple times since I've done them and <laughs> there are so many things that I would have done differently or or wished I would have spent more time on um before I actually incorporated them into the show, but but still, I, I really enjoyed doing them, and I've enjoyed the other ones as well. Um, it's given me a new appreciation and a new insight into the creators and the actors and actresses that uh, have made Superman the, the legend that he is over the years, so I'm really glad that other people have been enjoying those too. And it makes me kind of laugh. Uh, you say you listen to the show on twice speed on the iPhone's podcast app. Uh, and it makes me laugh because I do the same thing. Uh, not this show, obviously, because I do this show and it'd be kind of dumb to listen to myself. But um, other podcasts I listen to, uh, I will often listen to them on twice speed on the iPhone's podcast app simply because. I have so many podcasts that I listen to, and there's just no way that I could keep up if I wasn't um, listening to them at twice speed. So I'm not sure what that says about me, maybe that I listen to too many podcasts. I don't know. Uh, But thank you, Drew, very very much for the email, and I'm glad you like the show and hope you'll keep listening, at least to this episode, or that would be really awkward. 
Anyway, next up is an email from Caleb York. Actually, a pair of emails from Caleb. Uh, he sent this shortly after the last episode was released. Um, and his first email is just titled, titled, Your Podcast. And he writes, Hey, Michael, I was wondering when you were going to do a new show. Episode 91 was excellent as usual, but I do condemn you for using your for your Nickelback reference in the previous episode. I was also wondering if you have read Dark Knight Returns, which I hope you have, as you have done a Batman podcast, as well as your Superman one. Anyway, what do you think about Batman beating Supes in that comic? Do you think it was realistic, or do you think the Man of Steel would have won? Please respond back, as I enjoy your coverage of Superman and have renewed my interest in his Golden Age adventures. From Caleb. And you know what, Caleb? I have not... This may come as a shock, but I have not read... The Dark Knight Returns. Uh, it's it's one of those books that is on my list um, of things to read. Obviously, Superman featuring in it, but I have never really been a huge fan of Frank Miller's work. Um, I have read parts of his Daredevil, and I, I want to get uh, the collections of that because those I really have enjoyed, but. The other stuff I've read of his, I've just not really enjoyed too much. Um, and I admit, part of it might be a bias on my part. Um, he he has been very, maybe not so much in current or recent years, but in the past, he has been very outspoken about how he doesn't care for Superman. And you know, I I have while I haven't read The Dark Knight Returns, I have heard enough about it and heard other fans talking about it um, over on Bailey's Batman podcast they just did like a uh, two episodes like four hours long uh, Michael Bailey and Michael Kaiser and Donovan Grant talking about the series and other than that I've heard other podcasters and other friends and other fans talking about it and read blogs about it and all this stuff so I, 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 I know the basic gist of the story and it's just while it's something that I will read at some point I'm not going out of my way to do it soon. Um, that may be sacrilege to some people who, who you know, hold it up as one of the greatest comic book stories ever told and all this stuff, but I, I just don't have a lot of incentive to go read it. Uh, so I can't really answer your other question about if I think it was realistic that Batman beat Superman in that comic. I mean, I, I guess realistically there's there's no possible way that a human could beat a fully powdered powered (laughs) Kryptonian but you know it's it's comics and there's all sorts of 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 ways you can write it where it could happen it's it's at the end of the day it's it's all at the whim of the writer so so sorry that I can't answer your question but one of these days when I finally get around to reading Dark Knight and and the sequel uh Dark Knight Strikes Back. Uh, if I'm still doing the show, I, I send me an email and I'll I'll try to answer it then. Uh, but you know, on 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 a similar note, I did actually recently read Batman Year One for the first time, which I thought was okay. Uh, I, I really enjoyed the art in it. I, I wasn't as blown away with the story as I as some people maybe think I should have been, but I, I did think that was all right. So. You know, if if that's Miller's take on Batman, and if if you know Dark Knight Returns is closer to that than I think it is, then I might enjoy it. But 
like I said, I haven't read it yet, and I'm probably not going to do so anytime soon, even, even though I will at some point in the future. Sometime. <laughs> uh, so thanks again, Caleb. The next email from Caleb was also in response to episode 91, and he the subject line was Superman Action Toys. Uh, just to remind those who have forgotten since that episode was a few weeks ago, there was an ad in that issue of Action Comics advertising some Superman action toys, and I had expressed a question about exactly what they were. I had done some light Googling and, and didn't really find anything out. I wasn't sure if they were uh, like action figures or, or what they were, but apparently Caleb looked into it more, and he writes, Michael, you said in episode 91 that you were wondering what those Superman action toys were. I did some digging and found out that they were wind-up toys made of tin. There were even a, there were even a few expensive ones on eBay. So I guess that answers that question. Thank you very much, Caleb. Um, if you have links, email, send me an email, Caleb. I, w- I would love to uh, just check out the... I should have brought up eBay before I started recording here and, and tried to find them, but if you have you know eBay links or even uh, a website that talks about them, send me the links because I'd, I'd love to check them out and, and maybe uh, share that information on a, the next episode or a future episode. And our final email for this episode... At least I think it's the final email. If I've forgotten something, I, I, I deeply apologize. I'll catch it on the next episode. Uh, but it comes from Sean Engel, and the subject line is Episode 91 Reactions. And unfortunately, I can't read Sean's Episode 91 Reactions because it's more photographic. Uh, but he does continue after the, uh, the photographs. You win, sir. You win. On a more serious note, thanks for the latest episode, and don't stress over getting them out on a weekly basis. They're always entertaining and well worth the wait, even if they include Madonna songs at the end. Sincerely, Sean. And Sean, I really want to thank you for being a good spirit uh, with the jokes, and definitely for the note about you know not stressing over getting the episodes out on a weekly basis um it is a concern you know and i hate that the show can't be weekly anymore but it just can't and you know like i said last episode work and life has to come before podcasting so that's the way it's going to be but but you know it, it makes me good when i hear from folks it makes me feel good if I can speak tonight, it makes me feel good when I hear from folks, um, and, and I heard from a couple of other people too via Facebook or whatever, uh, that, you know, they look forward to the episodes even though they're not coming out on a weekly basis anymore. So thanks for that little word of encouragement, and once again, thank you for being such a good sport. I should point out that Sean kind of lobbed the cannonball back at me and got me back from my little prank uh, on a future episode of his podcast, well, a future from last episode. It's a past episode now. It, time is very confusing when you do podcasts. Uh, but he, he kind of got me back from my little joke, and, you know, I considered some sort of retaliatory effort. But, you know, I, I just wasn't really feeling inspired. So, I did a little dance. And then, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, and I'm saying, you know, a lot, but just bear with me. I said, you know, sometimes you just have to be the bigger man, the bigger podcaster, as it is, and step away and and not start a feud. But then other times, sometimes you just have to get into the groove. Get into the groove, boy, you got to screw you. 
to me that there's probably a cross-section of people that listen to this show that don't listen to Sean's Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, and have absolutely no context to understand why uh, Madonna is so important to Sean Angle. But to you folks, all I gotta say is, well, well, two things, actually. First, if you're not listening to Just One of the Guys, you're depriving yourself of 45 minutes to an hour and a half of solid entertainment each and every week. But more importantly, to quote Rory Cochran's character from Empire Records, I regret not the things I've done, but those I did not do. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have to go glue some quarters to the floor. And while I do that, you can listen to this promo. And then we'll come back and talk about Superman. Promise. Well, hello there. I'm J. David Weeder. You may know me from the internet. Come in. Enjoy my palatial Arctic estate. Ah, I see you noticed the smell of mahogany and my hardback archive and showcase editions. Yeah, I do all right for myself. Listen, why don't you get cozy here with me on my titano skin rug while Matello mixes us up a drinky drink? Matello, soda cola martini, shaken. Look, I want you to come with me to a place. A place where it's only you and me and the Man of Steel, maybe Jimmy Olsen and Lois Lane? Wait, wait, where are you going? No, this isn't me coming on to you. This is a podcast promo. What I'm trying to propose is joining me weekly like Clark Kent did when he threw the green crystal into the water and saw Marlon Brando's giant head appear, only in podcast form and my head just won't even be visible because it is an audio medium. Once a week, delve into the world of Superman with me on Superman Forever Radio. Look at comics, toy lines, TV series, characters, creators, anything and everything connected to the Man of Steel. Every Sunday at supermanforever.com, iTunes, and other podcatchers. Superman Forever Radio, fighting for truth and justice forever. That's supermanforever.com. See, I didn't mean what you thought I meant. It's all good. And yes, this is a new glowing white Kryptonian robe. Thank you so much for noticing. And yes, that is Lori Lamaris lounging by the pool. Don't tell her, but we're having smoked salmon for dinner and she takes it very personally. And you know who can't take a joke? Terra Man. You get one Glue Factory reference and he's up in arms. Superman Forever Radio. Keeping J. David Weeder off the streets so you don't have to. Alright, and we are back. And now that we have our 80s and 90s pop culture references out of the way, we are going to talk about some Superman. Specifically, the 19th storyline from the Superman radio serial, which was episodes 118 to 123. It aired November 11th to November 22nd, 1940, which almost 72 years to the day um, from when this episode is being released. It's hard to believe that these shows are 72 years old. 
And not only have they never been officially released and we're still able to hear them in such good quality, I mean, they're not great quality, but they're they're listenable, which is more than you can say for a lot of audio that's 72 years old, 72 years old and has never been restored. But story-wise, it's amazing how well these still hold up. Uh, you know, there there's some goofy elements, no doubt, and there's plot holes in some stories that you could drive a truck through, but you could say the same thing about fiction coming out today. So it, it just speaks volumes, I think, to yet another reason why Superman became the global icon that he is today when the things he was putting out 72 years ago, or the things that were being put out 72 years ago, starring him, were were such high quality. Now, but like I said, November 11th through November 22nd, 1940, Superman number 8 was likely released just before the start of the storyline, and Action Comics number 32 was likely released just before it ended. So, a pretty comic-heavy time during the storyline. In the newspapers, both the Daily and the Sunday strips were winding down storylines that will be covered sometime within the next few episodes. Back on the radio, this was only a six-part arc, so thankfully, a bit more manageable. Let's say thankfully. I actually like the longer storylines, but they are a lot more difficult to cover uh, because of their size. So it's, as far as the podcast goes, it's really kind of a a catch-22. But anyway, it was six parts long and has been given the title, The Invisible Man. When we last saw him, Kent, as Superman, had captured the yellow mask and turned the master criminal over to the police. Returning to the Daily Planet, he was informed by Lois Lane that editor Perry White wanted to see both of them in a hurry. As our story opens today, Kent and Lois are outside editor White's office waiting to be announced. Listen. Perry speaks with a Mr. Ralph Remsen, saying the Daily Planet will do everything in its power to aid a movement to oust the city's crooked district attorney Parker. Lois and Clark enter, and introductions are made, and Clark remembers Remsen formerly served as D.A. Parker's assistant, but had resigned two months ago, citing the crooked politics. Perry then fills them in on their planned crusade against the D.A., and Remsen details Parker's how Parker had aided criminals in escaping their charges. Remsen has spoken with the city's Mayor Healy, and the mayor is behind the effort, But the hitch is that the general public doesn't know about Parker's dirty doings. To them, Parker's the golden boy philanthropist who is doing a lot of good for the city. And that is where the Daily Planet comes in. Perry tells Clark and Lois he wants them to write a series of articles against the DA, exposing his crooked ways using information and proof provided by Remsen, which he collected during his time as the DA's assistant. Not only will it do the city good to get rid of the crooked politician, but the healthy boost in circulation that's sure to come from the exposés is, you know, welcomed as well. Remsen says he needs a bit of time to get the evidence together, and agrees to meet Clark and Lois that night at 4 o'clock in Perry's office to discuss the first article. Meanwhile, in the DA's office, Perry yells at a guy named Brownie. His flunky, who can best be described as a 1940s version of Otis. <laughs> oh, I did it. <laughs> I did it, Mr. Lugo. Mr. Lugo, I did it. 
just like it don't read. All right, all right, all right, Otis. Listen, it isn't that I don't trust you, but uh, I, I don't trust you, Otis. What'd you do? Well, I, I set the, the first directional vector to uh, thirty-eight, the second one to sixty-seven, right. and the third one to one hundred seventeen. What about the fourth one? What, what, what fourth? Oh, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait a minute. The third one to 117? Yes, see, I wrote it down, Mr. Luto. I wrote Otis! Otis! The third one was supposed to be 11, and the fourth one, 7. Oh. Oh, gee. Oh, gee. Oh, gee, Mr. Luto. Oh, I see. I guess my arm wasn't long enough, see? Otis, I, I Otis would you like to see a long space. arm? No, Mr. Otis, <laughs> would you like to see a very, very long oh, arm? No, Mr. Luto. Otis, no, no, no. Apparently, Parker has gotten wind of the target that Remsen and the planet have put on his back. Never mind the fact that they just decided to do this right now. But he knows that Remsen can't be bought and is concerned that his former assistant has already turned over the evidence, so killing him will not do any good. While worrying about what to do, there's a knock at the door. Brownie opens it, but finds that there's no one there. However, Parky and Brownie are spooked when they hear a disembodied voice. He introduces himself as the Invisible Man, saying that he knows about the DA's predicament and says he can make sure the Daily Planet's articles are never printed, for the mere price of $100,000. A short time later, as the clock chimes four, Clark and Lois work on the article. Clark is in a hurry to finish because he and Lois have plans for a date later that evening, when they hear a voice saying that they should hurry and finish it, and when it's finished, they can tear it up. Clark Perry and Lois are spooked by the disembodied voice and try to find where it's coming from, and the voice says he's standing right in front of them, but that he can't be seen because he is the Invisible Man. The sudden um, lack of appearance by the Invisible Man leaves the Daedal Planet's finest at a loss, and wondering if it isn't a trick or possibly some mass hallucination caused by, you know, rampant drug use. Personally, I would suggest rampant drug use, because with Lois' mood swings, you know, she's got to be on something. But anyway, Clark, always the stand-up guy, at least on the radio, demands to know what he wants, he being the Invisible Man. The Invisible Man warns them not to proceed with their campaign against D.A. Parker, or they'll regret it. Ignoring the threat, Perry says there's a great story in the fact that there's an Invisible Man in his office. But Clark just shrugs it off, saying that there's nothing wild or supernatural about it, and it's merely a trick and nothing more. The Invisible Man then repeats his threat that they will regret if even one story is published about D.A. Parker. Clark, Perry, and the other stand firm, but are puzzled when the Invisible Man doesn't respond and assume that he left just as mysteriously as he came. Perry then tells Lois to get back to work on the story and tells Clark to hammer out a column about the Invisible Man's visit. But Clark says they should just wait and see if it develops into a real story. And Perry agrees that when they figure out how the Invisible Man makes himself, well, invisible, then they will have a real story. Yeah, it makes no sense to me either, but let's just go with it, folks. So, a short time later, Clark and Lois are on their date when they discover that their waiter has set three places, saying that that's the order he was given. Clark and Lois puzzle over it when the invisible man's voice sounds out from the third chair. 
Clark, at this point, has had enough of the intrusions and tells him to leave. But the Invisible Man grows angry, repeating his threat and warning them to listen. Clark stands firm and swears to go ahead with the story, regardless of the threat. The Invisible Man assures them that he's serious, but then seemingly disappears again without answering Clark's questions about what he's planning. A bit later, Clark and Lois exit the play when they are approached by one of the theater employees, who delivers a message saying that Perry wants them to return to the planet office at once. Hurrying back to the Daily Planet, Perry tells them they received a note from the Invisible Man, warning them that if the presses start that night, they'll not print another edition for weeks. Perry is worried about the financial hit that the paper will take if they can't print the Daily Edition, and he thinks they should halt the press. But Clark says no. He says they started the crusade against the crooked DA and need to see it through. Lois agrees, so despite his lingering reluctance, Perry calls down to the press room and orders them to start the presses immediately. As the presses roar into production, Perry, Clark, and the others are startled once more by the voice of the Invisible Man. He tells the Daily Planet crew that they've ignored his warnings, and now they've forced him to do something... unpleasant. He informs them that when they started the presses, they also started the timer on a bomb hidden nearby. Perry screams for the presses to stop, but the Invisible Man says that will do no good, because there's no way to stop the bomb. Perry pleads with Clark to do something. If the presses are destroyed and they have no way to print papers, it will mean financial ruin for the Daily Planet. At Perry's pleas, the Invisible Man taunts Clark, saying he got them into this mess by insisting that the presses run, and now he must get them out. Clark points out that they need to stop, you know, wasting time worrying about the paper's welfare. If the bomb goes off, it will mean untold cost of lives lost as well. Being the helpful type of mass-murdering supervillain, the Invisible Man says they've got two minutes until the bomb goes off, and that their only chance is to find the bomb and somehow destroy it before it explodes. Clark hollers to the press man, telling them they've got 90 seconds to find the bomb. Apparently not having a lick of sense betwixt them, everyone in the facility, Clark, Perry, and Lois included, begin a search for the bomb that really should have been scored with yakety sex had the piece been composed in 1940. After what feels like quite a bit of frantic searching, Lois, of all people, finally spots the bomb. With only 30 seconds left, Clark warns them all to clear out. A mad rush for the door, and everyone gets outside, but once the door is bolted behind them, Lois realizes that Clark is nowhere to be found. Inside, Clark is also not to be found. In his place stands the mighty Superman. With no time to fly the bomb out the window, and knowing that the explosion won't harm him, Superman throws himself on top of the device, mere seconds before it explodes, and uses his invulnerable hide to shield the blast, protecting the presses and anyone who might still be in harm's way. Back outside, the crowd has heard the muffled noise and thinks something might have gone wrong with the bomb. Lois questions if they should go back inside when Clark arrives back on scene, saying he thinks they can chance it. Clark explains his absence, saying he went to put a call into the police. And no one much questions it, and the group enters the facility. They see a hole blown in the floor from the bomb, but no other damage. They puzzle over how a bomb big enough to cause a crater in the floor didn't damage anything else, 
but are mostly just relieved that the presses are still running and that the first expose on D.A. Parker will hit the newsstands as planned. Some time has passed. Remsen and Perry wait to see Mayor Healy. Perry relishes in the fact that two successful articles against Parker have been published and that a third is on the press as they speak, but he says he's concerned over a threat of a libel lawsuit from Parker. Remsen assures him that the evidence is solid, so Perry starts worrying over the Invisible Man, and Clark says it's all good and he's sure they'll figure things out eventually. Finally able to see the mayor, Healy commends them on their efforts so far and says they have his full support. Perry suggests a grand jury investigation, and the mayor says he'll see to it immediately. Unfortunately, as Perry and the others are about to leave, they are again confronted by the voice of the Invisible Man, who warns them not to form a grand jury or continue with their crusade, or else. The mayor is firm on his convictions, but then receives a phone call, and after hanging up, the mayor solemnly tells Perry that they'll have to continue their investigation without him, because there's nothing he can do. When our next episode begins, the Invisible Man informs them that the call was from Mayor Healy's wife, informing him that she and her daughter were just in an accident. A truck had crashed into their car. The mayor apologizes for backing out, saying his wife and daughter mean more to him than anything else. Fed up with the Invisible Man's business, but apparently not caring that his wife was just in an accident and he can't be part of the investigation anymore, Healy joins Perry, Clark, Lois, and Remsen in a thorough search of the office, hoping to find a dictaphone or, you know, something like that that will lead them to uncover the secret of the Invisible Man. While they search, the Invisible Man laughs, mocking them. Finally, Lois thinks she sees something out on the fire escape. Healy grabs a gun as he and Perry plan on jumping the figure, but as they open the window, they are surprised to find it's Clark, who had went into the next office and circled back around. Clark dodges questions and makes excuses about how he got from one fire escape to another, all while the Invisible Man continues to mock them. Not wanting to let the Invisible Man get the best of them, Remsen says they should continue with their campaign, and Lois agrees. But Clark... Well, Clark says they should just drop it. He's a reporter, after all, not a hero. His job is to expose the news, not crooks. But Perry doesn't take this suggestion well, and says he and Lois will drive upstate first thing in the morning and talk to the governor. Despite Clark's seeming lack of backbone, Perry's determined to see Parker go down, whatever it takes. Elsewhere, Parker gets a call from... Lucky apparently one of the city's 'er ne'er-do-wells, who gives him an earful about the articles. Parker is then paid a visit by the Invisible Man, and the crooked DA lays into him about failing to stop the articles in the planet. The Invisible Man responds the man pushing hardest for the campaign is Editor White, and the surest way to stop the campaign is to stop him. Aware that Perry and the others are going to see the governor, the Invisible Man has made arrangements that something will happen to their car at a specific point about 100 miles into their trip, which they should be reaching any time. He's vague on details, but assures Parker that it will not fail. Elsewhere, Perry and Lois speed down the road, puzzling over Clark's cowardly backing out of the campaign. Lois asks how close they are to the governors, and Perry says they're about 40 miles away. In fact, in another mile and a quarter, they will have reached the 100-mile mark. 
Meanwhile, back at the Daily Planet, Clark and Rimson chat, recapping key points from the last few episodes. Jimmy Olsen shows up, looking for Lois, and Clark tells him that she and Perry are on their way to see the governor, which provides for another chance for more recapping. Despite Remsen's anger at Clark backing out of the crusade, Jimmy stands up for his friend. Clark tries to explain he was just taking the sensible approach, but Remsen tries to goad Clark into a fight, eventually going so far as to actually punch him in the face. And that... well, that doesn't go too well for Remsen, and results in Remsen just hurting his hand, which leaves Clark to fumble about and make an excuse that Remsen simply must have hit a nerve in his hand. Clark starts to explain to Jimmy why he's backed out of the crusade when the voice of the Invisible Man sounds sounds out. The unseen malefactor taunts Clark and the others, dropping not-so-subtle hints that Perry and Lois are in danger. Making an excuse that he has to see the press operator, Clark slips away, telling Jimmy and Remsen to keep working. And soon, Superman is rocketing his way through the sky on his way to pick up Perry and Lois's trail. In the car, Perry and Lois approach a bridge, but inexplicably find out they are unable to steer or slow down. The car rockets off a nearby cliff and out into the night, but they quickly discover they aren't falling. Instead, the car seems to be flying through open space, circling around and setting safely down on the ground once more. Once back on the ground, Perry and Lois exit the car, and against the moonlight, Lois sees the faint figure of Superman flying away. Some time has passed. Back at the Daily Planet, Jimmy tries to convince Perry to give Clark another chance. Lois, or perhaps a pod person impersonating Lois, agrees with Jimmy, while Remsen just grumbles about Clark being a big coward. Perry's unswayed when Clark enters the office, and he is summarily fired. Lois and Jimmy urge Clark to stand up for himself. Okay, well, Jimmy does. Lois's crazy dial has seemed to have swung back the other way, and she tells him to stand up for himself and not be a coward like he usually is. Which, to her credit, is kind of her form of encouragement. So, there you go. Anyway, Clark says there's nothing he can say. Nothing, that is, except that he'll have to take his story about the Invisible Man to another paper. He's figured out everything, and if the Daily Planet doesn't want it, he's sure that some other paper will. Perry is, at first, disbelieving, but seeing Clark's assurance says that if he can prove it, he's got his job back. And with that, Clark walks outside to begin his demonstration. A knock on the door, and no one is there. They think it might be a trick, but suddenly hear Clark's voice, saying he's right there in the room with them, but they can't see him because he's invisible. As his Daily Planet co-workers or former co-workers at this specific point in time, if you want to get technical about it, stand in awe, Clark announces that he has, in fact, turned himself invisible. They can't see him, but he's sitting in a chair right in front of them. Upon further prodding about how he was able to do it, Clark admits that he didn't make himself invisible at all. He reveals that he was able to catch on to how the invisible man pulled his trick right from the beginning, thanks to remembering a series of articles he had done on oddities of the world. Remsen starts to leave, saying he's got business to attend to, but Clark urges him to stay, and continues, reminding Perry and the others of the articles he had done on a world-famous ventriloquist. The Invisible Man, he says, is nothing more than a darn good ventriloquist. 
Clark then stops throwing his voice, but continues to speak, which reveals his true location out on the fire escape. Once he climbs back inside, Lois asks if he knows the identity of the Invisible Man, and Clark replies that he does. He reveals that it had to be someone close to them, because with the variety of places they encountered the Invisible Man, there wasn't always a place to hide. Which means that the true identity of the Invisible Man is... You guessed it. The only person in the story that it could possibly be... Ralph Remsen. Remsen denies, but Clark says his plan was to get money from Parker to stop the very crusade that he had started. Caught red-handed, Remsen pulls a gun. Clark turns on the coward act and pretends to faint, wrapping his arms around Remsen's leg in the process, causing Remsen to trip and allowing Perry to knock him out. Perry then drags Remsen out of the room, intent on taking him to the police, while Lois puzzles, wondering exactly what to make of Clark. Some time has passed. Lois meets up with Clark at the train station to cover a big story about a $5 million gold shipment that's coming into the city. Clark thinks it's a big, boring story, but Perry wanted him to cover it anyway. The two chatter a bit about the wrap-up of the Invisible Man case and that Remsen was sentenced to 5-10 to ten years in jail while Parker was sent away for 20. About then, the train starts pulling into the station when something starts to go wrong. Clark and Lois rush down to see what's up, and one of the station attendants tells them that the freight car carrying $5 million in gold and the crew of five armed guards has disappeared, which means Clark and Lois have yet another mystery to solve. Ready to form Voltron! This is a job for Superman. Power Rangers! Right away, Michael. Autobots, transform! By the power of Grayskull! For the honor of Grayskull! Hello. I'm the Doctor. Charlie's Geekcast, coming January 1st, 2013, to charliesgeekcast.blogspot.com. I enjoyed this story, but it was really weird structurally, the way it, you know, the way it broke down into individual episodes. It didn't really come through in the synopsis, but each episode began with... Well, well, each episode, I guess, but the first. Each episode began with about two minutes of story repeating how the previous episode ended. And each episode kind of went on for a bit, maybe, maybe 30 seconds or so, after what would have been the perfect cliffhanger moment. It's just really weird. Um... And then the final episode, you get about two-thirds of the way in, and then they're suddenly shifting gears and setting up the, the next story that we're going to be talking about in the radio show. I don't know if this is marking a shift in how they're doing things, or 
if this storyline just wasn't long enough for these six episodes. Um, since the show began, the parts of each storyline has been multiples of three, so that each story began on a Monday and ended on a Friday, no matter how long the story was. Beginning with the next storyline, though, the length of the stories is a bit more arbitrary. Uh, there's an eight-parter, a 14-parter, an 11, and so on, which will cause storylines to end midweek. So, what could be awkward padding and the fact that several of the past storylines have felt, you know, crammed or stretched to fit into that, that multiple of three, I can only assume that the writers were feeling more and more constricted at, at having to f- fit into such a tight uh, restraint for their stories, so they started mixing it up some. Either way, though, this one was just really awkward uh, with the way it would start an episode and, and repeat a good, amount, a good amount of story that you'd already heard. But still, I I did enjoy the story. I thought it was pretty fun. Um, to get into the episode-by-episode episode notes, episode 118, at the beginning of this episode, the announcer says that Clark just returned to the Daily Planet after the deal with the Yellow Mask and was told by Lois that Perry wanted to see both of them. Yet, at the end of last episode, they were driving back to the planet, and it was Clark that told Lois that Perry wanted to see both of them. So... That was kind of an odd discrepancy. Um, I really liked this episode, though. I liked that we got a solid scene of Clark, Lois, and Perry together. Jimmy isn't brought into the story until later, but having the four of them together really feels good. It's the classic Superman story setup, and as much as I enjoy the Seagull stories from the newspaper and the comics at this point, they do still lack that iconic feel when it comes to the Daily Planet staff, since Jimmy hasn't been introduced there, and the editor really isn't a significant part of the stories, or much of a character at all. But, speaking of that, that, you know, that iconic setup, this story, maybe more than any to date, felt like it could have been an episode of Adventures of Superman. You can visualize George Reeves and Noelle Neal Jack Larson and John Hamilton in these scenes, especially later on when the Invisible Man comes in. I mean, an Invisible Man story would have been the exact kind of quote-unquote special effect that would have been perfect for that show, given the low budget, since it really wouldn't require anything at all, special effects-wise. Also, given the idea of Clark Perry and the planet going on a crusade to take down crooked politicians... It fits perfectly with not just Adventures of Superman, but more importantly, this era of comic books. One of my only quibbles with it is that in the comics, or even later in Adventures of Superman, it would be Superman himself leading the charge, with the Daily Planet backing his play. But given that Superman is still a a much more under-the-radar figure in the radio show, it makes sense here that it would be Clark, or Clark and Perry, leading the way in this type of thing. And at the end of the day, it was Clark who figured out the Invisible Man thing and ultimately fold the entire plot. So, you know, it's still Superman, even if he's not in costume. Another minor quibble, but really one owing, I guess, more to the time in which the story was written, is that when Remsen is talking about why he left the DA's office, Clark mentions 
three or four names of crooks that have gotten off thanks to the mayor. And it would have been really nice if at least a couple of those names would have been names we'd heard of in the past. Even if they weren't, you know, central figures to past storylines, just a name check to a previous story would have been nice. But, you know, I call it a quibble, but that's that's really unfair to the show since they just didn't do that kind of layering and, and long-range planning back then. Yes, they're connecting arcs and doing callbacks to past stories, but planting seeds and Easter eggs for future stories just doesn't happen. So take that comment for what you will. Um, I also appreciated Perry's honesty concerning why they wanted the story. Renson's idea is for the Daily Planet to start an anti-Parker campaign. You two will write the story for the information Renson gives you. Huh? It's the greatest chance we've ever had to do the public a real service, and I'm all for it. Yeah, say nothing of the boost in circulation, eh, Chief? Well, that does enter into it, of course. A newspaper's lifeblood, so to speak, is its circulation. Oh, Mr. White. Ah, now, wait a minute. I didn't mean that as a pun, young woman. You both know as well as I do that the better our circulation, the more advertising we get. And we depend on that advertising to keep us going. However, the important thing is not only to get Parker out of office, but if possible, to put him behind bars as well. If ever a man deserves prison for what he's done... We all love the romanticized idea that reporters and journalists are all about truth and justice. But at the end of the day, any journalistic organization, be it a newspaper, uh, cable news, or a blog, or whatever, are keeping an eye on that bottom line. And while this wasn't necessarily a case of tell the story and lose circulation, at least not yet, I appreciate the bluntness of, yeah, we're doing a public good here, but we're also patting our own bottom line at the same time. And I also want to point out that this is the episode where it's mentioned that Clark and Lois have a date for dinner and a movie later that night. After berating him time and again, calling him a coward on multiple occasions, this, that, and the other, now Lois is okay with going on a date with Clark? Radio Lois is starting more and more to feel like comic book Lois in her scattered attitude towards Clark. And to be honest, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Um, episode 119, not so many notes about this episode. Uh, really, the only thing is at the end. Perry receives a note from the Invisible Man threatening to blow up the presses at the Daily Planet if they print the story. And Perry's reaction is to wring his hands and call Clark? No. If there's a bomb threat, you evacuate the building and call the police. In that order. Then you call your top reporter and let him know what's going on. But first, you evacuate the freaking building. <sighs> also, I talked just a few minutes, just a few seconds ago, about the romanticized notion of news organizations being, you know, after truth and, and not profit. Unfortunately, when Perry gets the threat, his thought is not about getting the story out but about the financial hit that the paper will take if they can't print. So, while I like the so-called realism of that, at the same time, it is fiction, or superhero fiction. And you kind of want your characters to have a little more fortitude, I guess is one word, one way to put it. And I'm not saying be stupid about it. Evacuate the building and sweep for bombs. But I want to see them stand their ground and say... Threat or no threat, 
press or no press, we are getting this story out. Thankfully, Clark did take that attitude later. Well, not the part about sweeping for bombs, because, hey, he's Superman. But, you know, he, he was standing his ground and saying, we need to get this story out. Episode 120, here the Invisible Man confronts Clark, Perry, and Lois, telling them about the bomb in the press room, blah, blah, blah. And he says that they have exactly two minutes before it goes off. So what's Clark do? Tell people to evacuate? Slip away and use his super speed to search the entire facility in a blink of an eye? No. He tells the pressman to look for the bomb. I think if I were working for the planet, I'd be like, yeah, good luck with that, and then find the nearest door, you know? I mean, really? And I know, I, I know it's a silly complaint. Characters do a lot of things in fictional stories that no sane person would do in real life. With Superman, the very premise is wild and fantastic, and it's really unfair to expect the characters within that universe to act as they would in real life. But there still needs to be an emotional connection, uh, some semblance of a genuine reaction when you're dealing with a scenario that could that could very well play out unchanged in real life. I mean, if you have Superman dealing with an alien invasion, that's not going to happen. But someone threatening to bomb a building is something that very well could happen and does happen and has happened. And I realize that, again, I'm looking at this from a 2012 perspective rather than a 1940 perspective. Maybe uh, people then obviously weren't living with the very real threat of, uh, well, with the as-pronounced threat of terrorism as we have it today. But still, we get none of that here. There's no mention of the dozens of lives that could be lost if the bomb explodes. Ostensibly, the only threat the bomb poses is destruction of the presses. And that's just... I hate to say it because, again, it feels like an unfair nitpick, but it just doesn't feel right. On a more positive note, I did, though, like that it was Lois that ultimately found the bomb, rather than Clark or Perry. They didn't make a big to-do over it, but it's a nice little moment for the character, I thought. Um, I'm going to jump ahead to the very uh, final episode here. Really, it's interesting that all of the supporting cast got kind of a little moment to shine this time. You know, Lois found the bomb. Um, in the next to last episode, we have Jimmy standing up for Clark, which I liked. Perry, in the final episode, is the one that knocked out Remsen with a little unknown help from Clark. You know, it's just these little things that I think in the long run really helped the characters become mainstays of the Superman mythology and not just fade away like Tumbleweed Jones or whoever. Here we have, on the radio compared to the comics, Perry White and Jimmy Olsen are very much characters. Uh, they get fleshed out as much as any supporting character did in 1940, and the writers are giving them not huge moments, not big story points, but, but these little moments to shine. And I just think that is wonderful, and, and, it, and it says a lot about why the characters have lived as long as they have, aside from being connected to Superman. Um, and the last comment about this episode is that the scene with 
Superman covering the bomb with his body to shield the presses was really nice. It's a scene that's difficult to pull off on radio. I mean, it would have been a much more dynamic uh, moment in animation or even print, but given the limitations of the radio show, it was an exciting moment for the episode. Episode 121, at the beginning of this episode, or at the end of last episode technically, the, uh, the mayor receives a call about his wife and son's accident. From the dialogue, it's pretty clear that the Invisible Man either caused the accident himself or had someone cause it for him. And even though there's no mention that anyone was hurt, it must have been a pretty serious accident given the grave demeanor of the mayor after the phone call. So, you begin to wonder, knowing as we do, since we've been over the whole story, that Remsen is the Invisible Man, what exactly is his game here? I mean, he feeds info to the Daily Planet, hoping to take down the crooked DA, and then, as the Invisible Man, makes a deal with the DA that, for a fee, he'll make sure the story never sees print. I don't really know what his objective is. At first, I thought he was trying to extort money from the DA and not really feeling bad about it since the DA is on the take. But aren't there easier ways to get about to go about that than orchestrating the, the whole Invisible Man gimmick? And if he's really trying to provoke the DA's downfall and only using the side deal with the DA to get money in the process, he's doing a pretty poor job of, of not foiling the Daily Planet stories since if not for Superman, both the presses would have been destroyed and later, Perry and Lois would have been killed. And I don't know why he would involve the mayor's family, because that just seems really, really excessive when stopping the planet is only a ruse. I, I just don't know. It, it all seems very complicated, and the writing wasn't very specific on what he was trying to accomplish. But you know what? Even given that, I still enjoyed this story. And it's a testament to the entertainment value in the writing of the serial that it's really only something I questioned while doing my notes. So, <laughs> good on them for, for having what could be considered a pretty huge plot hole and it not really taking away from the entertainment of the story itself. Um, I hate to continue with the criticism, but Clark feigning dropping out of the campaign also seemed kind of pointless because they never really did anything with it. It feels like the only reason writing-wise that he stepped away was to set up why Perry and Lois would be going alone to see the governor. I don't mind Clark pulling a stunt like that if it means he's going, you know, undercover or as a way to trick the villain. I like that because it shows Clark thinking on his toes and, and being smart about stuff. But nothing really came from it in this instance, so I, I'm just left wondering why they did it. Episode 122 not that I'm unhappy to see him, or hear him, I guess, but save for the sake of recap, I can't imagine why Jimmy was brought into the story here. Um, <laughs> he really served no purpose except for being the guy that Clark and Remsen explained the last four episodes to. Um, I did like, though, like I said, that Jimmy kind of got a small moment here as he was standing up for Clark. That was very nice. And I liked when Remsen took a swing at Clark and only succeeded in hurting his hand. It made me laugh, and it's its not something that happens too often, or at least hasn't happened too often in the stories we've looked at on the show. And 
I really, really liked the scene with Superman rescuing Perry and Lois as they went over the bridge. Surprisingly, it wasn't used as a cliffhanger. And, and very surprisingly, really, because it, it would have made a great one. I may be wrong, but I'm afraid there was some implication in what the Invisible Man said about Lois and White being in danger. Just to be sure nothing happens to them, I'd better see if I can pick up their car. Now, there's the post road below me, like a silver snake in the moonlight. I don't see a car anywhere. Maybe the Invisible Man didn't mean anything at all by what... Wait. There. There are the headlights of a car. Far in the distance. Maybe White and Lois. I'd better pile on speed. Got a feeling that seconds may mean the difference between... No doubt, Lois, that the governor will help us. Well, it's this invisible man business that bothers me, Mr. White. Mm, that is a riddle. You know, I... So you better slow down, Mr. White. It's a pretty steep curve ahead. Practically a hairpin turn. Yes, I'd better slow... Oh, what, 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 Mr. White, what's happened to the car? Well, the steering wheel. It's broken. Mr. White, we're heading for that, that cliff. Oh, what the... Lois, the brakes don't work either. Oh, oh gosh, there's nothing I can do, Lois. Nothing. The handbrake. Try to work the handbrake, Mr. White. Oh, that doesn't work either. Oh, we can't stop. There's the edge of the cliff. We're going over it. Come on. There's no one here. Nothing. Yeah. There is. Look. Against the moon. The figure of Superman. I loved the subtle flying sound that they used during the rescue to let you know that it was Superman. And then we have the scene at the, at the very end as they see Superman flying away against the moonlight like a guardian angel. Just very cool stuff. And very different from, you know, later in modern day takes on the same type of scene where Superman would stick around with his hands on his hips, making sure that they were okay. Maybe even making a joke about not being put off driving or some such. This Golden Age Superman, the radio version anyway, he's just not one to stick around for thanks and accolades. Uh, it's just a very different take, but somehow still feels true to the character. Episode 123, when I, when I was listening to this episode, I have a note here that just says George Lothar. Um, have I emphasized how much I love George Lothar doing the announcing on the show? This is the first full storyline with him behind the mic, and he's just got so much more of a dynamic delivery. I, I never had an issue with the previous announcers, but Lothar is big and brash and, and really fitting of the character and the... Uh, action serial nature of the storylines. But yes, folks, as explained in the synopsis, superventriloquism gets its very first use right here in the radio show. The Mind Boggles. They make a reference to a series of articles written by Clark, quote, some time ago, unquote, covering oddities of the world, which is a bit weird because... Since the show began, almost every story has taken place concurrently with the last. Or consecutively, I'm sorry, with the last. Certainly the last several have, anyway. So maybe we're to assume that Clark did these in between episodes, so to speak. More likely, it seems, they've kind of moved away, or moved into a position 
on the continuity where even though the first arc told of Clark getting his job at the Daily Planet, they're kind of glossing over that aspect of it right now and are taking the view that he's been there for quite some time. It's kind of wonky, and I don't really like it from a you know a, a guy that likes continuity, but I can live with it. Um, the show still has a remarkable sense of continuity from story to story, and nine months, which is how long the show has been on at this point, is a lifetime to kids. So, I can live with it. Um, okay, now, in this episode, where Clark is revealing Remsen's plan, we get this conversation. You weren't interested in helping the public. Your game was to squeeze money out of District Attorney Parker. What? You made a deal with Parker to protect him against the campaign you yourself had started. You figured it out very well, Kent. Superman, better be careful or you'll be running him a close second. But all your brain work will do you no good. What do you mean? This, Kent! So that tells us what Remsen's motive was. It was purely to get money. But I say again, aren't there easier ways to go about that? And it seems to me that going to the Daily Planet with a story in the first place was a bad move. Despite any confidence he might have had that he could stop them from printing the story, there are still... Chances were still pretty good that the paper would be successful in at least getting the story out there into the public. And if not them, another paper. So there just had to have been an easier way to get money from the DA. But I also note that Superman is talked about pretty matter-of-factly here. Combine that with the earlier scene when Lois and Perry watched him fly off, and it's interesting to see the shift in that Superman has become much more of a public figure, even if he's not as much of a public figure as he is in the comics. Um, I think this is really... I don't want to say it's the first time, because there have been other instances, but, you know, Superman is... they're, they're starting to refer to him as someone who actually exists within their world and, and not as a uh, an urban legend and a pure figment of, you know people's imaginations. So that's interesting, and I'm, and I'm really looking forward to seeing where that goes in future episodes. Um, so that wraps up the story of The Invisible Man. The final four minutes of this episode, for whatever reason, as I mentioned, start in on the next storyline. Uh, not too much to say about this segment, other than the fact that Clark says that the gold that disappeared was coming from the Metropolis National Bank which marks only the second time in 123 episodes that the city has been named. I listened ahead to the first few minutes of episode 124, and they say it again there. So it's not a fluke, um, but how much or how often um, it'll, it'll be used in the future remains to be seen, or heard, <laughs> I guess it is. Um, not too many overall notes about the story and not just because I forgot to do this portion of my notes. Um, but like I said, I liked it. Despite the fact that it seems like I had a lot of criticisms of it, I did think it was a really fun storyline, and it had a nice little mystery that kept me interested in the story as the six episodes went on. And yes, the whole, oh, he used ventriloquism, is kind of a silly resolution, but it, it works in a 1940s radio show aimed at kids. So there you go. I do think it was a little ridiculous that Remsen could fool people so long by throwing his voice, but 
again, it works in the context of the of the show and and who it was aimed at. So, I I can live with it. Um, if you're interested in hearing the storyline, unfortunately, it's never been released officially. Like pretty much every episode or every storyline we're going to be covering from the radio show from now on. Um, and it was not adapted into radio and television mirror. Um, the episode, the actual audio episodes, if you want to find them, like all the shows, can be found at a variety of places across the internet. So look them up. God, Johnny, I know nothing about comics. Do I have a solution for you? Hmm. Riddle me your solution, good sir. Do you know what a podcast is, Knox? What? A podcast. It's like a radio show, but it's on the internet. And people talk about things. Don't say. Well, here's my thought. What if we did a podcast about geek stuff? Genius! Right? So, here's my thought. I bring some sort of geek thing to the table, we both read or watch it, then we cover it from my perspective of being a geek my whole life, and your perspective of, well, not. I like it. I like it a lot. Alright. But what shall we call this podcast of ours? I think I've got it. How, How to, to make, make a geek, geek in 60 minutes. How to make a geek in 60 minutes. With Knox Van Horn and Johnny Fraver. cordially invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a ten-cent pulp comic book to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. Witness the dawn of the superhero. Golden Age Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libsyn.com. Every legend has a beginning. Next episode, we'll be back to the newspapers for a look at the 18th storyline from the Daily Strip for a story that's been called Pawns of the Master. And it's a very important storyline in the overall history of Superman, so be sure to come back. Before I sign off, I want to make a note of a new project that I've started that I think a lot of people that listen to this show will be interested in. Um, I've long been a fan of the work of Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster beyond Superman. I think they were both far more talented than people realize, and especially in the case of Jerry Siegel, are responsible for a lot more of comic books as we know it today than has ever been recognized. As we've gone through the stories on this show, I've tried to champion various things that they were doing in other books, and the amazing amount of work that Siegel was churning out at this point. And 
over the last couple of years, I've been reading more into their lives and, and doing some independent research, and my appreciation for their work, not just with Superman, but beyond, has only really grown. So I finally set out to do something that I've wanted to do for a long, long time. I've started a blog all about Jerry Siegel, Joe Schuster, and their work, and legacies. The blog is Siegel and Schuster Mythmakers, and you can find it at greatcrypton.com slash Schuster. The tagline of the site is Celebrating the Lives, Works, and Legacies of Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And that's exactly what the site's about. As I said in the inaugural post at the site, I'm sure there's going to be plenty of Superman talk on the site, but I'm also going to be looking at other things they did. And I'm going to be looking at the legacy of their work. And I'll be sharing information about their lives and influences. And it's just a big Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster party. I launched the site on October 17th, which is the day that would have been Jerry Siegel's 98th birthday. And while there's not a whole lot of content there yet, I've got a lot of ideas and will be working on posts in a pretty steady rhythm in the future. Uh, one thing that is there, well, I mean, there's more than one thing there, but but one of the most recent as of this recording is that on Halloween, I participated in a crossover with 18 other blogs looking at various supernatural-themed and, and Halloween-flavored stories. My selection for Siegel & Schuster Mythmakers was an early Spectre story written by Jerry Siegel, and it was really good. Um, very different than anything... Superman that we've covered on the show, but very, very good. Down the road, I'll be looking at other stories, and I've got uh, ideas to look at, not really issue by issue, but, but like runs he did on certain characters. Um, I'm, I'm just really excited about it, and I hope you'll check it out. If you like what I do on the show, I, I really think you'll like what I'm doing on the blog. Uh, once again, the URL is greatcrypton.com slash Schuster. It's also on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for it or click the links at the site. And I just really hope you'll check it out. But that's it for this week. Um, I want to thank you all very much for joining me. Once again, I, I feel I have to apologize for the episode being so late. I actually meant to have this episode out last Tuesday, but which would have been election day, I guess, election day in the States, but it just didn't happen. Um, as it is, I ended up recording this over <laughs> three or four days, um, kind of in chunks. So, yeah. But anyway, um, like every episode, I want to invite you to stop by the website at greatcrypton.com for show notes and back episodes, just all sorts of other things. I also did a Halloween-themed post for that site as part of the crossover that I mentioned. It wasn't a Golden Age story, but it was Superman, so check it out. At the site, you will also find the RSS feed and the iTunes link if you want to subscribe to the show. Uh, now that the show is a little more sporadic as far as releases go, if you haven't subscribed, you should definitely do so, because otherwise you might miss an episode, and, you know, that would be bad. Um... <laughs> The site will also give you the Facebook and Twitter links. You can follow the show on both sites to get it up to get updates whenever there's a new episode or you have show-related news that I feel like sharing. Uh, please don't forget about the Superman homepage and the Superman Podcast Network. 
Not only will you find items whenever there's a new episode posted, but there is all kinds of other Superman-related awesomeness in between. And last but not least, I invite you to check out my other podcast, Green Lantern's Light, which I co-host with Jeffrey Taylor and J. David Weeder. And on that show, we are looking at the post-crisis Green Lantern. And you can find that at GreenLanternsLight.com. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye. feeling that something may happen at almost any minute. How right you are, Mr. White. What? Why, why, it's the Invisible Man again. That voice sounded as if, as if he were standing right here among us. It can't be. But it is. I'm standing right here beside you, Mr. White. Why? Why didn't you heed my warning? Now you have forced me into something that I find most unpleasant, most distasteful. And just exactly what is that, Mr. Kent? You're so serene about the whole matter, so confident that you all can win out against me. Gentlemen, listen to me. When you started those presses, you also started a time bomb concealed in one of them. A time bomb? Joe! Joe, hold the presses! Stop them immediately! You bet your life will. Wait a minute. That won't do any good, I'm afraid. Stopping the presses won't stop the bomb. It won't? I decided, Mr. White, that if you were foolhardy enough to disregard my advice, I'd teach you a lesson. You started the bomb, you cannot stop it. Your presses will be blown into wreckage. As I said in my note, it will be weeks before you publish another edition of your paper. Oh, Kent, this is terrible. What can we do? Think of what it means to the paper. If those presses are blown up, if we're unable to get another edition on the streets in weeks, we're ruined, man. Utterly ruined. I, I, for one, don't see what you can do about it, Mr. No, we've got to do something. Those presses are worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. If we're forced out of business for even a few days, we'll... we'll... Kent, can't you think of something? Yes. Kent, think of something. You got Mr. White into this? Figure some way to get him out. He's right. You did get me into this, Kent. It was you who said to go ahead and start those presses. Kent, you simply got oh, to just do... Just a minute, please. We're all standing here wasting time talking about the value of those presses. We haven't even begun to think about the lives that may be lost in this thing. How much time have we? By my watch, you have exactly two minutes. Two minutes? You have one chance, Kent. If you can find the bomb and destroy it within two minutes, you'll be all right. Yes. Yeah. If you fail to find it within two minutes, remember, I'm afraid you'll have to suffer the consequences. You now have exactly one minute and 45 seconds. 
Good luck, gentlemen. And good night. Cross, we simply got to find that bomb. It's our only chance. Looks like it, Lois. You men. Yeah? You men here in the yeah. press room. All right. Got a minute and 30 seconds to find that bomb. Oh, Better start looking for it right now. Yeah. Somebody better keep a good watch on the time. All right. Oh, Come on. Benson, find that press over there. Okay, okay, Ken. Mr. White, yeah. you take that one over there. Right. Come on, Lois. We'll have a look at the one near the window. Okay. Anybody see it yet? How much time have we, Clark? Oh, we have one minute. We better get out of here. Keep looking, ma'am. I'll watch the time. I'll get you out of here before it goes off. Don't worry. Oh, suppose there's some mistake in the time. Suppose the invisible man delivered and gave us the wrong time. Gotta take our chances on that. Oh, hang it all. Where can it be? Oh, it's nowhere to be found in that first chance. Well, try another one. Keep looking. Keep looking. It's too late, Ken. Too late. If we don't leave this room. What? Look. What is it, Lord? There it is. You can see it behind that nail of paper. Yes, that's it all right. Get it out of there, by heaven's sake. There's no time. Less than 30 seconds left. You men, everybody, get out of this room as quickly as you